Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Legendary singer Tony Bennett passed away in July 2023 at the age of 96. And despite having been diagnosed with Alzheimer's seven years prior, he continued to perform. While many people who suffer from the disease end up losing their ability to speak or understand and recognize their loved ones, Tony was a special case. He had been capable of recognizing his friends and family and was even able to remember the lyrics to be able to sing his songs. Today, we are here with Dr. Rehan Aziz, a geriatric psychiatrist and associate program director for the Psychiatry Residency Program at Jersey Shore University Medical Center, an associate professor of psychology and neurology at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine, to talk to us today about Alzheimer's disease and the severe cognitive decline patients experience, and of course, their caregivers. How are you today, Dr. Aziz? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. So I wanted to start off with a really basic question. What are some of the early signs, common symptoms of of Alzheimer's? So it's a combination of two things. One is short-term memory loss, and these are distinguished from long-term memories. So long-term memories are memories that people have of things that happened um, a long time ago, as the name employs, uh, as the name implies. Um, so Thing, where they grew up, for example, where they went to school, what kind of work they did, who they married. Um, those are all, all long-term memories. Short-term memories are of things that happened more recently. Um, so what they had for dinner last night, where they went over the weekend, um, what they have coming up. And we'll usually see short-term memories impaired, but long-term memories remain intact until very late in the disease. Um, Often it can get missed that patients are having trouble with short-term memories because usually when they're with loved ones, friends, or family, usually the conversations are about the past. And yeah. patients are very strong at talking about the past. Um, they're not as strong as talking about, uh, in talking about what happened recently. So that's the first thing that I look for. Uh, are they more forgetful? Are, are they forgetting recent things? The second thing that we assess is something called ADLs. Um, so these are activities of daily living. So in the early stages, patients might have difficulty with shopping. Uh, they might go to the store and they might forget to pick up items that they needed. They might buy things they already have. They might have trouble to register using a credit card properly or writing out a check. They might also have trouble with housekeeping. Um, I've had patients put dirty dishes away into the cabinets, um, have trouble operating the washer or the dryer. Uh, the next area, and usually we see difficulty in this early on, is with accounting. So balancing their checkbook, paying bills on time. The next one is uh, food preparation. So are they burning things? Are they missing ingredients? Is the food not tasting the same that it used to? Are they forgetting recipes? And then the last one is transportation. Uh, so are they having difficulty on the road? So we assess short-term memory plus uh, functional activities and specifically focus on shopping, housekeeping, accounting, food preparation, and driving or transportation. Very good. It all makes sense too because 
a disease that that affects your brain probably affects your everyday living life. For sure. I wanted to talk about the difference between knowing it's Alzheimer's and then knowing it's just normal aging or you just casually forgot your keys that day. Yeah, so this is a question that I get a lot, um, especially in clinic. Uh, and I'll often have older adults come to me wondering if their memory issues are normal or if they could be an early sign of a memory loss condition like Alzheimer's. Um, I would say overall for older adults, memory loss is probably one of their biggest fears. Um, and so it's really important that people know what signs are normal with aging and what signs might be might warrant more clinical evaluation. So normal signs of aging are occasional forgetfulness, um, which is often temporary. With time, people can remember what they wanted to recall. Um, in Alzheimer's or dementia, even with time, people are not able to recall what they're trying to remember. With normal aging, processing speed can be slowed down, meaning it takes longer to think through things or work through tasks. So um, if you're preparing a shopping list, for example, they might take longer to prepare that list um, at age 80 than they might have at age 20 um, due to declines in processing speed. Multitasking also decreases. So for older adults, we recommend doing one thing at a time and not trying to do four or five things at once. Um, Those are all normal signs of getting older. I think the other one that I get asked a lot about is remembering names. Um, Now, I think we all can struggle with remembering names, Um, but it actually turns out with aging, it's a normal finding that the part of the brain that's responsible for remembering people's names specifically can actually start to um, lose some of its form. Uh, And so it's not uncommon that people start to become more forgetful regarding names. Now, what is more serious if they're forgetting names of people that they've known for a long time. Right. Um, and so when I say names, I mean for people they're just meeting or they've met um, in recent times uh, versus uh, family members, best friends, spouses. People they've um, known so, forever. Exactly. So that would kind of be your tall tale sign of, all right, this isn't normal. My mom's forgetting my name, where she's known my name for the last however many years. Correct. So there also is some stuff that goes on psychologically. So what are some of those behavioral psychological symptoms that are attached to the disease? Yeah. So what I tell families is that Alzheimer's is a whole brain disease and our brain controls every part of our body. So it controls our breathing, um, our vision, our muscle movements, but also um, our emotions and our behaviors. Uh, So most cases of Alzheimer's are accompanied by behavioral disturbances. About 85% of people have behavioral disturbances. So it's very much the rule rather than the exception. The most common behavioral symptoms people might have are actually depression and apathy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can also see a loss of touch with reality. So becoming very suspicious, um, having thoughts that are not in uh, keeping with reality. Um, And in some situations, patients can become aggressive. Um, They might resist care. They might um, refuse, uh, they might refuse um, uh, clothing changes to shower, to bathe, um, to go out to medical appointments. In worst case scenarios, they can become physically aggressive. So they might um, bite or spit or push people away. I, I feel, you know, not physically aggressive, but 
the aggression of not wanting others to change your clothes or things like that, that could almost look normal because when you get older, you know, you still want to have that sense of pride within yourself to be able to change your clothes and you might not be able to anymore. So it might even be a mask almost. So your family members might not realize that this is actually a symptom. I think so. It can become really extreme. So um, I've had patients who refuse to change into pajamas at night. They would wear their day clothes and go to sleep in their day clothes. Um, and it'd become literally a physical fight to try and change them into pajamas. Um, I've had other patients who refuse to shower at all. Um, and the daughter for this was her father um, or his daughter actually created a calendar and she would put on the calendar you last showered um, last week on Tuesday and today's now Wednesday it's been more than a week and he would look at the calendar and he'd say no he would say no that's not accurate I showered yesterday oh so you like completely forget when you last showered that must have been a very hard thing for her to deal with it was. We, we learned to kind of to, to figure out how to deal with it. So not necessarily insist on daily showers, um, approach him or request um, or suggest a shower. And if the immediate answer was no, maybe to come back later and try when he was in a better mood or perhaps more cooperative. Um, yeah, it must have been hard for his daughter as well to see her father like this. Are there any like recommendations for how she should handle this? So most of the care for patients with dementia is provided by families mm-hmm. um, because of limited support from um, from Medicare, from Medicaid, uh, some of the other sources that may be able to help people. Uh, and it can be really expensive to pay for an in-home 24-hour caregiver, and many families are not able to afford that expense. Right. Um, so it's really important that family members take care of themselves and i'll often tell them the best way they can care for their loved one is if they actually care for themselves right Um, because studies have shown that when family members start to become depressed um, when they start feeling hopeless frustrated angry it always has a negative impact on the person they're caring for Um, and often that actually leads to nursing home um, placement Uh, which isn't the worst thing in the world but it's also very hard to go through it is. And what I tell families is that nobody has to go to a nursing home. It's always a question um, of what are the needs of the patient and the resources that the family can provide. So some families have a lot of resources. They might have financial resources. There might be a lot of people in the family. They can all take um, turns in shifts caring mm-hmm. for their grandmother or their grandfather or uncle or aunt or whoever it is. I mean, other families may not have those resources. It may be only a few people. They may have to work. They may not be able to stay home to take care of their loved ones. So it's never a defeat or a loss um, that someone has to go to a nursing home. It's always just a question of what kind of care can be provided for the patient to keep them safe. Absolutely. And, you know, is there any way that caregivers could maybe prepare in advance for caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's? So there's a great book called The 36 Hour a Day that I refer a lot of families and caregivers especially to read. It's really helpful and it talks about caregiver depression and some of the other stresses that caregivers face. They can also go to the Alzheimer's Association website, alz.org, that has a 24-7 caregiver hotline. And Alzheimer's Association also runs caregiver support groups. 
um, and we find that those are extremely helpful. Um, often caregivers can feel like they're alone yeah. and there's no one that understands what they're going through and just being in a support group where they can bounce ideas off of other people but also kind of share common struggles can be really helpful. Um, and we actually have a caregiver support group that we just started in the Hope Tower at Jersey Shore University Medical Center. Oh, awesome. We'll link below to it because I feel like it's really important to have that connection with other people, especially other people that are going through the same thing as you. It's, it's important to be able to talk it through. Any sort of safety concerns that should be taken when you bring your loved one home who has Alzheimer's? So for example, maybe you want to put things like, like almost like you're preparing your home for a baby. Like you put things on the outlets and you put soft things on the edges of tables and things like that. Is that something you would want to do for your home, for your loved one as well? Or is it less extreme? Yeah, great question. I don't usually get um, patients injuring themselves in those ways. Um, I mean, certainly if they're having falls, we talk about what they can do to prevent falls. And falls in older adults um, are really scary because they can lead to hip fractures, um, spinal fractures, wrist fractures, and they can be very disabling. So I, I always take falls very seriously when we try and figure out what we can do to prevent um, more falls. Um, but I don't usually have people kind of falling on edges of tables or... No one's baby-proofing their home for exactly. their loved one. So I think the biggest safety concerns are that people can become aggressive. And so they can not only hurt their loved ones or their caregivers, but they could also hurt themselves in the process. Um, I've also had patients um, leave things on the stove. So what will happen is they'll start cooking. Yeah. And because they have short-term memory loss, which is the core feature of Alzheimer's, uh, they'll get distracted and they might leave the room and they'll forget that they have something on the stove. Um, and so the thing on the stove can then catch fire. And of course, that can lead to a fire in the home if the patient doesn't recognize it and if there's no one else there. Um, so I worry about or I get really concerned if I hear that patients are burning food. Um, I've also had patients flood parts of their home. So this, it's the same kind of situation where they might turn on the faucet in the bathroom to wash their hands. They get distracted. They leave the bathroom and they forget that the faucet's running. Um, so I've had a number of patients um, have that happen. Um, aside from fires and water damage, uh, wandering really makes me nervous as well. Um, if you monitor the news, almost every year there's a case of, of someone with um, dementia who's wandered onto a highway and sometimes, unfortunately, get hit by a motor vehicle. Uh, wandering happens most often at nighttime. Um, a lot of our patients have what they call sundowning. So during the day, they're kind of calm and they might be napping. And the nighttime becomes their awake period where they're more active during the night. This, of course, is the time that the rest of us are sleeping. And so right. we're not always around to monitor what's happening at night. Um, and so the patients, and I've had this happen with several patients, they might be awake at 11 p.m. and they, they say to themselves, I got to get to work. Um, and so they'll leave the house and then they become disoriented and confused and they might just end up walking uh, down the street. They might get lost. The police might find them or in worst case scenarios, they can end up on a busy road um, like the New Jersey Turnpike or Route 1 or Route 18. I've had patients go onto those roads. Oh, my goodness. And is there anything you can do to prevent this from happening or any suggestions that caregivers could take you know to to hopefully not burn down their house or flood their house out or wander onto a very dangerous road to wander on so with the wandering 
there's a couple of things we can do. Um, so the Alzheimer's Association also set, has um, um, ID bracelets that I recommend um, families get or caregivers get for um, the person that they're caring for. And so the patient can wear the ID bracelet so that if they are found or picked up, it can say their diagnosis, that they have Alzheimer's, um, and their name and a number of someone to contact. I also ask families to notify the local police department that they are somebody with Alzheimer's is living with them who has a history of wandering or is at risk of wandering so that the police find them. They know exactly what the situation is. Um, in some situations, we've had families change the locks on their doors and make it harder for patients to leave. Um, their home. The issue with that, though, is that if there's a fire, it might be hard for the family to get out of the home. Right. So it's a bit of a mixed um, bag. Um, the other thing that they can do is have patients wear GPSs. And so if they do, um, and I think ALZ.org also has um, GPSs that patients can wear. Um, so they, if they do leave the home, they can be found easily. Um, but it can be a really difficult symptom to manage. Um, and in some cases, if people have a history of wandering and they're unstoppable, um, it can lead to nursing home placement where they have to be on a locked unit that they can't escape from. Oh, that's rough. I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and seeing, like, m not knowing where my parent is or my loved one is and not knowing what to do next, you know, because that's really the scary part is, okay, they're not here. What do I do? Do I stay here? Do I just go running the streets, you know, what do I do? For sure. I think uh, in general, families will probably start to to scour the neighborhood to see if they can find their loved one. Um, and it's a good time also for them to contact the police, let them know what the situation is. Um, so the police can also be on the lookout for the person. So what about, you mentioned burning food. Is there anything someone can do to prevent, you know, a fire in their home or, you know, forgetting to turn off the stove or things like that. Is there anything you could really do against that? What I usually ask families to do is be there when the person is cooking um, so that they cook under supervision. We really want our patients to remain as independent as possible right. for as long as possible. And for the skills that they have, it's either use it or lose it. And so if they're able to cook to some degree, we want to try and encourage that, but in a safe way. Uh, so if they can be monitored, that's ideal. Um, sometimes that's not always possible. Sometimes during these nighttime episodes, a patient might sneak down to the kitchen and start preparing dinner right. um, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. And of course, there's no family around um, at that time to help. Um, so in those situations, I have had some family members actually um, disconnect uh, appliances like microwaves, ovens, uh, and so on to prevent. Uh, fires. Oh, that's, um, that's extreme, but the families have done that in order to maintain the patient at home in a safe way. There are also devices that can be bought online on Amazon, for example, where you can put a cover over the knobs, making it harder to twist them on and off. And then I wanted to talk to you about not only our caregivers having to deal with, you know, them forgetting their, their stove is on and forgetting the sink is on and wandering. But as the, in the beginning of the disease, they really don't realize what's happening. And those conversations that those caregivers have to give with their family members about whether it be driving or financial, you know, capacities or, you know, just really decision making 
must be really, really hard to focus on with their loved one and say, look, something's going on. You can't drive anymore. Or, you know, I would like to take a hold of your financials or what have you. Is there any advice you would give to the caregiver to kind of get through that situation? So the financial piece, I think, is a little bit easier to deal with, actually. Uh, So as soon as patients come to me, right in the first appointment, um, we ask if they have a healthcare power of attorney or financial um, power of attorney. If they don't, um, I'll recommend to the, the patient, you know, just in case. Why don't we have, you know, somebody else on board to help you make decisions in case you're not able to do this in the future. Um, and we have a list of elder care attorneys that we can refer um, patients and families to. There's not usually a lot of resistance to that. Um, usually sort of everybody's on board with, you know, I'll have my daughter, I'll have my son, my niece, my nephew, whoever's involved, you know, kind of be there on board to help me um, right. with um, decisions if I'm not able to make them in the future. The driving, though, is really complicated and probably one of the hardest things that we have to deal with. Um, in our culture, driving is independence, right? When you're a teenager, what's the one thing you want? Do you want to get a license so you can yeah. get away from home, hang out with your friends? Um, it represents freedom. And if you take away driving, it's really traumatic um, for our patients. I don't think there's an easy way to do it. I I haven't thought of one yet. What I usually will recommend is if there are concerns with driving, and we have an obligation to protect both the patient from accidents, but also the public. Right. Um, because our patients could get into accidents on the turnpike, on other busy roads. They could hurt other people as well as themselves. And so... Um, I'm always very worried when I start to hear that a patient is starting to not do so well on the roads. And by that, I mean they might be getting lost frequently. Sometimes I'll have patients get lost for hours in their own neighborhoods um, on roads that they've driven thousands of times before. Um, That's a red flag. Um, If they've gotten to an accident, if they're missing stop signs or stoplights, just sort of driving right through them or not stopping appropriately. I will usually, I'll ask them if they're willing to voluntarily stop driving. Sometimes they are, but usually they're not. And then I'll say, well, it sounds to me that maybe we should cut back on your driving or maybe stop it altogether. And usually they won't agree with that um, for the reasons I mentioned. And then I'll say, well, it looks like we have a disagreement here. Why don't we have a neutral person evaluate you and we can go by what their decision is. So JFK actually has a great driving evaluation program, and I'll refer patients uh, to their program. They do a two-day um, uh, driving evaluation. They test all senses, hearing, vision. Uh, they will do a knowledge test, and then they actually take people out on the roads and wow. see how they do. It's actually more comprehensive than the test we all got when we were like 15 or 16. Yeah. Um, actually, probably 16 or 17 for our driving exam. And so they're seeing what they're like in real-world conditions, and then based on that, they'll render a judgment. But because it's being done through occupational therapy, if they can rehabilitate the person, they will do that. And so they'll offer um, ways to kind of mitigate the issues that they're having driving on the road. Um, And so based on that evaluation, once it comes back to me, I can then say to the patient, um, it looks like that there were some problems, um, that they noticed that you were not changing lanes properly, you weren't following the speed limit. I think at this time, I'm going to have to recommend, unfortunately, that we take away Um, your ability to drive or take away your keys. It's hard to take away that freedom. It's hard to, and I'm sure it's probably hard on the caregiver as well. You know, now you have to go and pick them up or you need to go and bring them to their doctor's appointments Mm -hmm. or wherever. You know, it's it's not easy. 
anymore for to lose to lose a driver. I remember when I first got my license, my mom was so excited she didn't have to drive me to school anymore. So I could imagine taking someone's license away, it, it becomes not only a burden on them, but a burden on the caregiver as well. So it's it's kind of a twofold there. And really deciding, you know, how you want to approach it is is tough. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the toughest um, decisions that we have to make. And, and I hate doing it um, because it's so upsetting for patients, but um, we have an obligation to keep them safe and keep other people on the road safe as well. Absolutely. And that program sounds awesome. We'll definitely link to it too. We kind of talked about this already. You, t- you mentioned in terms of de-escalating a situation or how some patients get aggressive. Is there any guidance that we should be following when patients get aggressive? Or is there anything that we can do to help de-escalate their, their agitation that they have in that moment? So the best tool that we have for dealing with aggression is actually caregiver education. It's more effective than the medications. The medications at best are modestly effective. Uh, and so we do a lot to educate caregivers how to work with their loved one with dementia. Um, as well as uh, work with them on uh, developing strategies for dealing with that. I think what I find is a lot of times it can become a confrontation. So you want um, your grandfather to take a shower and they're not doing it. And then it becomes uh, kind of a battle of the wills. That's not really the right approach. What I recommend is using distraction and trying very hard not to say no, because if you say no to somebody, that gets them very upset. Yeah, Um, I mean... Whether you have Alzheimer's or not, it will get you upset. Yeah. And then also being patient, remembering, you know, you have other opportunities. If they're not willing to take a bath um, or a shower right this moment, that doesn't mean you can't try again in an hour or two hours or tomorrow. Um, but I think distraction ends up being probably the best technique. So avoiding confrontation, but saying, you know, let's let's go watch this movie on TV or let's put on um, this uh, Tony Bennett record. Um, and then maybe that will change their mood, make them more agreeable. And then you might say some, you know, suggest, you know, what do you think about maybe taking a bath? Um, Absolutely. And I like how you mentioned Tony Bennett because it it sparked actually a question in me. So they mentioned how, you know, even though he has al- he had Alzheimer's, he was still able to, you know, recognize his friends and family from, you know, that he's had for many, many years. And he was still able to you know, sing and perform his lyrics and things like that. Is that, you know, an anomaly or a different type of case of Alzheimer's? Because usually I feel like you hear more so about people that cannot remember all of these things. So is that a different case that he may have had? It's hard to know. So we, we obviously don't have access to Tony Bennett's medical right. records. And we don't know, um, you know, what he was like towards the end of his life uh, and what kind of treatments he was receiving and what was the course of um, the disease. I think that's a top fear that people have, that they won't recognize loved ones. It doesn't happen until very late in the disease for most people. It's what we call agnosia, is this inability to recognize people. Uh, And it's really so a sign of severe dementia. So he may not have been at that severe stage, especially if he could still play his songs or recognize his songs. Um, recognize family, do many of the other things that right. he was capable of. He was still, I mean, up until a few years ago, he was still performing, you know, and knew all of the songs that he was performing, remembered all of his lyrics, things like that. Is it maybe because 
I know that music sits on a different side of your brain than than logic does. Is that maybe why that, you know, Alzheimer's only kind of connects with one piece of your brain rather than the whole thing or? It's a really good observation. So there are different kinds of memories, as you're alluding to. Uh, and I think this is an important point for the audience also. Uh, memories are not all the same and they're not all housed in the same parts of the brain. So Alzheimer's early on affects short-term memories. So it uh, and short-term memories are what did we do over the weekend? What did we do yesterday? What do we have to do tomorrow? It doesn't affect long-term memories until really late in the disease. And long-term memories are different than short-term memories and they're stored in different part of the brain. So people early on in Alzheimer's, they'll remember where they went to high school, who their BFFs were, um, where they went to school, um, what kind of job they had, that kind of thing. And so for that reason also, they can appear uh, like their usual selves in conversations, especially if those conversations are focused a lot on the past right. and past happy memories, vacations, that kind of thing. Um, they'll remember that stuff right away. Uh, but if you ask, you know, what did you do last night? That's where they might have more trouble. Um, music is a music uh, memories associated with certain kinds of emotions um, including music are housed in different brain they're part of the brain they're not the same as short-term memories which are fact-based um, musical memories are kind of more emotion-based is my right. thought and those memories are encoded much stronger uh, and they're not really lost until much much later in the disease wow so it really does you know show that his his decline wasn't as rapid as right. as you hear about more often with Alzheimer's disease. Right. So if you think about yourself, for example, if you think about um, things that happened to you a long time ago, there are often things associated with strong emotions, um, like when you got married, when you graduated high school, you know, this great vacation you were on. And the reason is because those memories are so much stronger in our brains than fact memories. Very interesting. I wanted to switch gears again. Genetic testing. How do you feel about it? Should we get it? What do you think? It's a really complicated question. So I recommend genetic testing for anybody who has a family history of early onset Alzheimer's. And by early onset, we mean uh, under the age of 65. So there's a history of people developing Alzheimer's at age 55 in the family or 60s. Then there's a chance that it could be familially inherited form. And so genetic testing would be appropriate in that case. I don't necessarily recommend it always for people who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, because it's not going to change the course of treatment and it's not going to tell us a lot about their disease. Uh, and the reason I said it's complicated is because we now have new medications um, that are approved specifically by the FDA for Alzheimer's and they help to break down one of the bad proteins in Alzheimer's called amyloid. In order to provide these medications to the appropriate patients, it's we have to make a definitive diagnosis for Alzheimer's. And so in those cases, we may consider genetic testing. And I'm so happy you brought this up because didn't the FDA just approve one of these medications for Alzheimer's? Have you used it or, or seen any progress with it? Or, or how do you feel about it? I haven't used the medication. Uh, there's still not a lot of patients who have trialed these medications to date. And you're right, the approval was just a few weeks ago and they received it received full approval by the FDA um, for early Alzheimer's as well as mild cognitive impairment. Um, so we're really excited about this and the fact that it got full approval uh, 
and hoping that uh, we'll start to be able to use it in patients and see benefits from it. How do you, because it's not in a trial anymore, so how would you kind of apply for this? Would you have to hit, you know, a certain criteria in order to to trial these medications? Or is it just kind of based on your, you know, you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, this is a recommendation? So we want to definitively diagnose Alzheimer's uh, in these cases. So that might include genetic testing. That also might include um, looking at uh, spinal fluid samples as well that can help us diagnose Alzheimer's with a high degree of certainty. Uh, And there might be other tests as well that we might use, like amyloid imaging and so on. Uh, Once we definitively know that someone has Alzheimer's, and if they're in the right stage of the disease, then we could consider using one of these new medications. That's very exciting. I feel like that's a huge game changer for your field. I hope so. We'll we'll have to see what the long-term data is. I mean, these medications are still very recent, and there can be significant side effects associated with them including swelling in the brain and even like small bleeds in the brain. So it sounds pretty scary and we don't know what the long-term impact of that is going to be. Um, and the data in, from some of the studies shows that while they might be helpful, they're not as helpful as we want, we hope. Right. It um, will they, never just erase the disease. It's not a cure. Exactly. They don't necessarily stop the disease or reverse the disease. And that's really what we want. Right. You. I mean... Obviously, you're looking for a cure, not just a little, like, Band-Aid patch. Right. Is there anything we can do to reduce our risk for Alzheimer's? So talking to all of our listeners out there who might be, you know, afraid of the disease or anything we can do to kind of reduce that risk. So the British have very aggressively recommended a whole-life approach to preventing dementia. So as soon as you're born, you can actually do things to prevent dementia. Uh, One of the best things that people can do is actually um, complete education. That low education is one of the biggest risk factors for dementia. And it turns out that even if you go back to college or complete high school later in life, it's not the same as if you do it earlier in life. Um, So it's important that people stay in school and, um, and receive and complete their education. In midlife, it's really important that people attend to cardiovascular risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Um, What the British also identified is that hearing loss in midlife is actually a huge risk factor for dementia later in life. And so if you're finding that your hearing is going, um, see an audiologist, talk to your primary care doctor, get that addressed um, as soon as possible. Other things that they've looked at are, or another thing they've looked at is depression. Um, Depression is one of the biggest risk factors for dementia. And it turns out that early and midlife depression is probably a bigger risk factor than late life depression. And for someone who is depressed, who's been diagnosed with clinical depression in their 20s, 30s, 40s, it's important that they don't try and live with it, but that they talk to a doctor about it, they get treatment for it, and it gets treated as aggressively as possible. Going back to the caregiver, should you reason with them if they're, you know, in this state of mind, whereas, you know, they think it's the middle of the night, but it's actually, you know, they're supposed to be going to work and they're cooking dinner. And, you know, should you get up out of bed and reason with them and say, you know, it's not time to go to work. It's not time to cook dinner. It's time to go to sleep. Or should you just kind of go with it and be like, yeah, sure, we're going to have dinner at 2 a.m. And this is what we're going to do. We should try and provide an explanation 
for what we're suggesting be done or what our recommendation is, but avoid arguing with the patient. And so if they're awake at 2 a.m. and they're cooking dinner, we might say, you know, uh, mom or grandma, uh, you know, it's actually 2 a.m. in the morning and it's not really dinner time yet. Um, why don't we pause this for later and we can come back to it. How about right now we go back to bed um, and we'll work on it uh, tomorrow. So if they say no to that, I don't think I'd keep arguing. I'd probably work on distracting them. I yes. would say, you know, how about we go to your room? How about we work on a puzzle? Or how about we turn on this movie? Um, you know, maybe that'll help you feel a little bit more sleepy. Uh, or in some situations, we might say, you know, I have some medicine that might help you fall asleep. Do you want to try taking that? So I feel like distraction really is a key factor when you are the caregiver and taking care of your loved one, because it sounds like distraction helps with whether it be, you know, they're in a alternate state of reality at that moment, or they're aggressive and, you know, really don't want to shower or, you know, it really kind of depends on the situation, but it sounds like distracting seems to be like your key golden ticket there. It has been for me and for what I've, what I've recommended well, for people. Well, I trust you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, I think if we get away from saying no, because nobody likes to hear no, especially patients with memory issues who are less able to reason around a no or understand why you're saying no. And so if we say no to them, you, you know, if we, see, we say, no, you can't cook dinner, at two, it's 2 a.m., that's going to make them more upset. Right. Um, so I think we can find other ways to say the same thing. And if that's not working we can then work on distracting them or redirecting them to something else. Absolutely. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Dr. Aziz. Thank you so much for having me. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.